and welcome to Women at Warp. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name is Sue, and I'm here today with the entire crew. We have Grace. Hey, everybody. Did you miss me? Please yes. don't miss me. Otherwise, my self-esteem will plummet. <laughs> <laughs> we missed you like Dr. Crusher in season two. As much as we love Pulaski... We we still really miss Dr. Crusher in season two of The Next Generation. That is a pretty accurate statement. Oh, yeah. well, I don't think I could be the, the Dr. Crusher of this crew. I think that role's taken already. <laughs> <laughs> and we all know by who. <laughs> oh, wow, I'm flattered. <laughs> she means me, Sue. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> and that would be Andy. Hi, everyone. And Jarrah. Hello. And today, we are going to be reading your comments and emails and blog comments and Facebook posts and responding to them. But first, we have some housekeeping to take care of. First things first, that is, uh, Women at Warp is supported by listeners on Patreon. At Patreon, you can pledge anywhere from $1 on up, and that helps us to do things like upgrade our equipment and host our own website and create printed materials for conventions and sometimes even uh, travel to conventions. And that leads us into Star Trek Las Vegas. The entire crew will be in Las Vegas early in August. So come find us, come hang out with us, say hi, and we will be hosting a Women at Warp meetup uh, somewhere on the convention grounds, but outside the ticketed area. So you can come even if you don't, uh, if you don't have con admission. And for updated information on the date, time, and location, check out our event on Facebook. Other than that, we have some other conventions for some of our crew coming up. I will be at a 50-year mission Cherry Hill at the end of August, and then at DragonCon at the beginning of September, and then at New York Comic Con in October. And that is the same weekend that Grace and Andy will be at Geek Girl Con in Seattle. Woohoo! Very exciting. Love me some gig girl con. Do you have any cons coming up, Jara? I don't. I just got back from Montreal Comic Con, so if you missed that, we released audio from that last week. Um, so you can catch up and hear some of the highlights and uh, lowlights <coughs> Shatner <coughs> from Montreal Comic Con. <laughs> Vegas is really my big one for this year, so pretty excited about that. I did want to just mention, though, before we get into the topic, that I just finished reading The 50-Year Mission, which is a new book out by... Uh, Edward Gross and Mark A. Altman, who are responsible for those, the captain's logs, sort of unauthorized guides to Star Trek. And the 50-year mission is a two-part series. The first volume is out now, covering the first 25 years of Star Trek. There was a lot of buzz about it when it was first announced, so I asked for a review copy, just finished reading it. Um, I did post a full review on Trekkie Feminist, but I just want to say, I think it's, it's a pretty cool book. It's kind of like a super panel in that it's the entire book starts every chapter with a topic like Wrath of Khan. And then the whole chapter will have just quote after quote from their decades of interviews with different people. So like behind the scenes on camera and then like media commentators. So, um, and some, some of the super fans as well, like Bijo Trimble. So it's kind of like every, the ultimate panel that you always wanted, but couldn't actually make happen. But it was a little weird. There was, uh, I thought, kind of a dearth of women interviewed, given that they added new people, like these media commentators and academics and things like that. I thought there was opportunity to interview more women. 
But I will say it does have a really interesting chapter on fandom and particularly interviews a lot of women who were instrumental in the first conventions and fanzines and fanfiction and stuff like that. So I'd recommend it uh, for that reason, um, as well as just it's it's an interesting look and uh, a pretty it is a fairly easy read given the format. That sounds awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, let's jump into it then. Um, I assume we're just going to go around and take turns reading comments? Yeah. Let's do it. All right. So we got a Facebook message from Clara in the UK who said, Hi, Women at Warp Crew. I hope your week's going well. I've just finished listening to your latest podcast, and I was wondering if you produce any Women at Warp merchandise, like t-shirts or tote bags. If not, would you ever do so? And would you put any quotes from your podcast show or favorite Star Trek lines on them? Good question. The Trek FM does have a store on Redbubble, and we have one shirt there that has Aaron Harvey's awesome graphic of Never Forget Pulaski Bangdraker's Dad. There's also a Ninja Cat shirt that comes from a quote um, from Andy on another show, and there's a Word Cloud shirt that has names of a bunch of different shows on the network, and we're in that. And so you can get those, uh, not just shirts, the designs are available on mugs and tote bags and all kinds of things. Um, for us, it's something we've thought of, but it would be good to know if there's going to be more demand, and we would w- want to be choosing a site uh, or supplier that had uh, more diverse sizing than we can currently get on some other sites. There are two that I would really like to do. One is Sue's Science Corner. Yes. The other is a, like, band shirt for Songs to Pon Far To. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we also talked about the Spock's World Amok Time Excellent Wayne's yes. World parody. Uh-huh. Um, there's some potential there. So, yeah, I mean, if you have ideas for things you'd like to see, and if you can help us see if there's a demand for it well something that we can definitely look at further tell us what you want what you really really want what quotes would you want or just the logo on a tote bag something that simple yeah or what we need to know there's a demand before we try and make a market (laughs) (laughs) is that yeah is that one of the Ferengi rules of acquisition yeah might as well be yeah in this case females and finances do mix So the next comment we have is from K spelled K-A-E on Facebook. Um, I say this because we have different K's in this this mailbag. And K says, Hey, Women at Warp fans, I'm looking for your ideas. Some of my favorite episodes of Star Trek are the ones that demonstrate the supportive work environment that encourage personal growth. That is Starfleet. Some of my faves are those are TNG, Arsenal of Freedom, Lower Decks, and Voyager Parallax, and Enterprise Minefield. Any other good ones in that category? Full episodes don't come to mind, but what immediately comes to mind for me is the scene at the end of Loud as a Whisper, when Picard makes it a point to tell Troy how appreciative he is of her work. Yeah, for sure. That was the first one that came to mind for me, too. I love that Star Trek is just peppered with these little scenes every now and then, where you get to see people just be like, hey, you, you do good work. Those are always a great little thing to see because it feels like watching your best friend get a pat on the back. Yeah. I think it also comes across in the relationship, or really all of the relationships in Lower Decks, but especially the one between um, Crusher and Ogawa. Yeah, and there is a Voyager episode that's fairly similar to Lower Decks called Good Shepherd. I don't think it works quite as well, but it definitely has those same messages. And there's some, some nice scenes about Janeway supporting 
three uh, Lower Decks-ish crew members who have sort of fallen down on the job in various ways and helping them realize their potential. So that's a pretty cool. And there's a lot of examples in Voyager because Janeway is so much of like a mentor mother figure. I mean, tons of examples of episodes with her and Seven of Nine helping, you know, we get to see Kess supporting the doctor. There's just, there's a lot of great relationships and characters who undergo personal growth and it's a good part of emphasizing with voyager how it's like well this is the crew we're stuck with we can't swap you out we gotta make do (laughs) like year of hell is another example where um they're in just like the worst situation imaginable and people are really just pulling together to help each other everyone balana kim they're all just uh doing their utmost in that situation and tuvok and seven of nine form a, a close supportive relationship as well that's cool to see I think there are also several examples of Cisco going out of his way to support Kira, especially. Mm. And Rom and Nog. Yeah. Yeah, but also um, O'Brien supporting Rom mm-hmm. when he, he begins to work in the engineering crew. Spoilers, Andy. It's okay. <laughs> There's a, a very specific scene where, uh, I can't even remember the episode right now, but... It's Dax. Dax, thank you. There's a very specific scene in Dax where somebody's talking to Cisco and Kira starts to take over the conversation and ask questions and he kind of dismisses her and he's like, no, I'm talking to the commander. And Cisco literally steps behind Kira and says, no, you're talking to my first officer now. And I'm just like, yay, Cisco. Nice. Best boss. I just love the physicality of it. He literally has her back. He walks behind her. To show his support, but also that she's going to be taking point. It's it's very cool. And I also love that Sue knew exactly what I was talking about. It's like <laughs> zero context. We talked about that recently, too. <laughs> All of these episodes I've recently covered on From There to Here. <laughs> Next up, we have a comment from KKAY. Which is, I've just been listening to your episode on Kirk's love interests, and the point you made about the trope of women using sex as a weapon got me thinking. I'd be really interested in your opinions on the Voyager episode Counterpoint, and whether you think Janeway plays up to this or not. It is a very well-liked app generally, I believe, and Kate Mulgrew states it as her own favorite. But I find that whilst I like it, the niggle about her behavior is definitely there. I'd also love to know your more general thoughts on the representation of women's sexuality and sexual agency in track. A mixed bag, in my opinion, but there's some good stuff in there as well as the cringeworthy. Boy, that could be a full episode there, couldn't it? It really could. Um, (laughs) Gosh, super, super generally speaking on the broader question, I would say that I think that the high point for women's sexuality in Star Trek is uh, for like them having agency and being able to express desire and also negotiate meaningful relationships is Deep Space Nine. I think Kira and Dax both have good examples of that. Um, I think that it's a little bit more fraught in the other series. Uh, when you brought up DS9, one episode that comes to mind is Playing God, in which Dax apparently hooks up with what looks like a space biker. And the Trill initiate that she's supposed to mentor kind of slut shames her for it. And she just kind of leans back on the couch and takes, like, literally sips tea. I was like, I'll do what I want. I love that. I love Dax. Yeah. (laughs) He really was wearing an interesting outfit, though. (laughs) (laughs) 
Interesting is where we get our fun, though, as far as costuming on Star Trek goes. Oh my gosh, there's this... Okay, so when the Trail Initiate kid comes to the... When he comes to the door, and the door is opened by Space Biker, it's like the two extremes of track fashion, one being, like, beige spandex, and the other being, like, he has kind of, like, cornrows, and then, like, a patterned vest with no shirt underneath it. It's all very strange. Oh, god! But I love the juxtaposition of the two of them as, like, Star Trek fashion at its best. Completely ludicrous and completely boring. I like to think that after that experience, neither of them was ever quite the same fashion-wise. I <laughs> <laughs> was like, should I be wearing more beige? And beige guys more like, should I be wearing more vests? <laughs> <laughs> I could get cornrows. No, don't. You don't should. really. <laughs> uh, that guy. That guy definitely should not get cornrows. <laughs> <laughs> so counterpoint is a really interesting question, though, about that. And um, so, for anyone who doesn't remember, counterpoint is the episode where Voyager is smuggling telepaths and uh, through this area of alien space, and Kashik is an inspector for this alien species. And he keeps coming on board to conduct these inspections to make sure they're not hiding telepaths. So Janeway and him are playing kind of this game of counterpoint where they're both using seduction and intrigue and uh, misdirection to mislead the other one. And Janeway and he, it seemed like they maybe have a romance of some kind, but it's not really clear whether... That was just part of her ploy to convince him that she was a friend instead of someone that he should suspect. So, yeah, I I mean, I generally don't see it as problematic as what we talked about in the Kirk, Kirk episode, which is women who show up with their sexuality and men literally can't handle themselves and the women take advantage of that situation. For me, this situation is because she is using her her brains more than her body throughout the whole thing, it doesn't really bother me. Frankly, I think that's what gives the episode, uh, I know this is going to be debatable, but I feel like that adds a definite level of sexiness to it. The fact that they're both just playing this long, drawn-out mind game and that they're both totally aware of how intelligent the other party is. Yeah, and because they are both on more equal footing, like, it's it's not that because he might be kind of attracted to her, he isn't, it doesn't make or break the, the plan. But definitely an, an interesting question. I think also, if we could follow that up with another Janeway episode where she's seductive as, um, I'm trying to remember, it is the one with Joel Grey as the guest star, though, and there's just oh, a scene resistance. Where, yeah, we're out of nowhere, she's going to dress up as a prostitute to try and get past the guards and her prostitute costume just involves taking her hair down and putting on a scarf. Yeah. It's definitely, uh, that one's more problematic because it it really does use like sex work as kind of a prop and that Janeway just like takes on this identity in order to, to confuse a guard. And that one is definitely a bit more of an issue. And it really is. I remember seeing that episode for the first time and just the moment where she comes out of the shadows and is like, boys, I'm like, really? Wow. And I was even more surprised that the guards went for it. It was just very obvious. Like, does this never happen to them before? Oh, man. And Janeway isn't the only character we've seen do something like that. Uh, We have Uhura's fan dance, 
We have um, Crusher performing Umox. I think that's in Chain of Command. Luxana <laughs> performing Umox. Mm-hmm. Doesn't Ro kind of insinuate that she might be a sex worker in Gambit or one of those other ones where she's like undercover, oh, not Gambit, yeah. but she's undercover and she kind of one. makes out with Picard. Yeah. She fakes it with Picard in a preemptive strike so they yeah. can talk. Yeah, that one's, uh, I mean, that's a different situation, but, but again, it, you know, it doesn't, um, invite us to understand or appreciate real stories of sex workers and it just kind of makes it like a cheesy plot device. Uh-huh. So, um, Grace, do you want to read the next comment from Eric? From Eric, we got a comment on our website saying, it would be really interesting if you did an episode comparing Star Trek to other sci-fi shows and how they portray women. Big task, which requires a lot of research, of course, but I would imagine that Babylon 5, probably my favorite sci-fi series with TNG on a strong second place, would be worth talking about in that regard, as would Starscape and the new BSG. My gut feeling says that all three of these would probably score better on the Bechdel test than TNG. Don't know about DS9 or Voyager, as I haven't finished watching them yet. Actually, your podcast is what got me thinking about this, though, and it's very interesting and a real eye-opener. Keep up the good work. First of all, thank you. Good to hear. And secondly, we, um, we, we do a small amount of comparison to other sci-fi series every now and then. We'll bring up like a really obvious parallel, won't we? Absolutely. It's a, you're right though, Eric. It's a huge topic. This is something we actually get a, a number of requests for. And, um, it's always just been, you know, how do you even break it down? But I can't answer your question on the Bechdel test. I don't know how the other series do, but I actually Bechdel tested all of Star Trek. So I can let you know that original series, 8.8% of the episodes pass. Next generation, 44.9% of the episodes. D Space Nine, 57.8%. Voyager is by far the highest, obviously, with 87.5% of the episodes passing the Bechdel-Wallace test, and 39% of the episodes in Enterprise. We do kind of get into some comparisons with other sci-fi characters in our Feminist Supercrew episode, Mm. just in the fact that we talk about some of the other cool sci-fi characters that would be awesome on a starship, like Kaylee from Firefly and stuff like that. And you talked about it a little bit with the uh, Star Trek Las Vegas panel from last year, right, Jara? Yeah, the, absolutely. We Last year um, at Star Trek Las Vegas, we did a panel comparing the women of Voyager to women in sci-fi since. Mm-mm. But in terms of main podcast episodes, there's just so much material to cover within Star Trek that I doubt we will be stepping much outside it anytime soon unless there's something really specific we decide we want to talk about maybe in a supplemental episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Otherwise, there's just way too much to work with there. (laughs) All right. So our next comment came from Zara, who writes, I'm writing to request your advice. I have a six-year-old daughter, and I would like to begin showing Star Trek to her someday. I think that despite its many flaws, Star Trek at its best inspires a passion for exploration and learning, makes us confront current issues in an interesting way, encourages open-mindedness, and shows that there are so many different possibilities beyond just the way things are now. I hope to hold back the more problematic episodes until she's old enough to at least begin deconstructing them in a way similar to what you do on your show. But how would you recommend going about introducing Star Trek to her? Which episodes do you think are the best to start children with, especially girls? And P.S., if you read this on your show, could you give a shout-out to my daughter, Freya? Hey, Freya! Hi, Hi Freya. Freya! 
the first thing that comes to mind for me is Rascals from TNG. Mm-hmm. I know that not everyone loves that episode, even though I love that episode. But the reason that I would say that it might be great for kids is because it's actually a celebration of childhood and what is good about being a kid. And I think that that's valuable. So I, I know that when I was a kid, all I wanted to do was grow up, you know? And so it's it's hard sometimes to realize that, you know, childhood is, is valuable and you don't want to rush it and stuff like that. So an episode that explicitly has that message. And I, I think that it's a fun one in general. It definitely is a pretty um, cartoony premise that's really easy to understand what's going on, which is good for a younger person's attention span. One of the ones that I thought of um, is the episode the 37s in Voyager where they run into the their ancestors from Earth, including Amelia Earhart. As a kid watching that episode, it really inspired me to look up heroines in history as well as looking at these sci-fi characters of the future. And uh, that's a it's a pretty fun episode. It's just, yeah, and it generally just has this nice relationship between Earhart and Janeway and shows that even really strong women in command have doubts and fears. Totally. For me, I started watching Star Trek, I mean, as long, as far back as I can remember. So <laughs> as far as age appropriateness of episodes, I may not be the best judge of that. But maybe I would suggest if you are interested in going through a series, I, maybe Voyager is the place to start uh, because we've got as we just talked about the the highest uh, percentage of episodes passing the Bechdel test, we've got perhaps uh, episodes written in a more modern way. But being in the Delta Quadrant, you've also got it separated from the other show that was airing at the same time, Deep Space Nine. So you don't need the stories to interconnect with one another. And it's sort of self-contained in that way. Yeah, and you also get Naomi Wildman, who I think mm. is, a, is a pretty cool child character. She's you know, definitely precocious, um, but no, yeah, kind of adorably so. And she wants to be the acting captain. She wants to learn from other people, and she reaches out to people who are different from her. So I, I think Voyager is definitely a, a good place to start for a little girl. But we like this question so much that we're probably going to do a supplemental episode on this and get some people who actually have kids to comment as well. Um, we just have cats. <laughs> yeah, my cats like all the episodes with Spot. <laughs> Another episode that I would recommend from the original series would be the Tribble episode. Trouble yes. Tribbles. I mean, that's yeah. just a super kid-friendly episode, I think, and just is a, is a good example of everything that is good about that the original series. Um, and, and I think it's, it's accessible. You don't need to have total background on all the characters to know what's going on. It's it's a good dropping someone into the series show. And it's also, it's it's just, it's really fun. And yeah, I mean, I just, I, I think if you're, if you're going to want to ease somebody, is a kid into TOS and all that entails, that would be a good one to start with. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just thinking about one of the earlier episodes I saw of TNG that was part of my exposure to it. And it's going to be a weird choice. And that was actually a fistful of datas. <laughs> but it's it's silly, it's action-packed, and there's a lot happening. Mm-hmm. And it's very theatrical and very big concept, which I think kept me interested. One, I would say most of the holodeck episodes 
uh, maybe even Data's Day. Yeah, Data's Day is a fun mm. one. I definitely have issues. I mean, definitely if you're trying to avoid problematic messages, I feel like there's a few in Data's Day, but there's some fun moments for sure. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you know, obviously there's some of these things that a kid is not going to pick up on, like I did pick up on as a kid. Like one of the ones I was thinking about actually was Disaster, because there's the three kids that are in the turbo lift with Picard, and as a kid, I really liked that episode. I also really liked Thine Own Self, because I wanted to be like the little girl who was friends with Data in the place where they think that he's an uh, Iceman. And uh, yeah, I mean, those ones definitely are, I think, are other ones that you could deconstruct more fully, but I think they're examples of episodes that do have role models for girls in them. Here are two I'd avoid. Imaginary Friend and When the Bow Breaks. (laughs) And also definitely, definitely not that creepy kid one from TOS, which is the worst episode ever. What is that one? Uh, And the Children Shall Lead. And the Children Shall Lead, like, ha ha ha. Look at all the children crying over their death of their parent. And not Alan of Troyes. <laughs> it would be much easier for us to do a, a don't list. <laughs> Actually, yeah, I mean, I think it, the harder part would be sorting out the ones in the middle. But um, anyway, I'm excited to do more of an episode on this, but I think we should probably move on to the next comment, which is from Rebecca, who says, One thing I always wondered, which isn't addressed in a mock time, but maybe is in Spock's world, do Vulcan men have any right or recourse to divorce their wives? The marriages are arranged, and neither the boy or girl have any say in who they are bonded to. But we see there is some path of recourse for the women. Or do we just assume that the men would never choose to otherwise because their ponfar brains just can't turn down the women they're bonded to? I always interpreted it that while men are dominant on Vulcan and women are property, women seem to have possibly more choice in the matter. Interesting contradictions. Also, most of Vulcan's problems seem to revolve around a puritanical view of sex. Or this could be a reflection of the writers. The equation of sex and violence also comes in the enemy within when Kirk's violent primitive side is also the sexual side. So I still haven't read Spock's World, but I have the book on my shelf. Does this answer this question? I mean, it goes more into detail into, like, the marriage society, I guess. Um, They do tackle it. So the way that Spock's World is set up is there is the primary story, which is Spock, Kirk, and Bones trying to convince Vulcan not to leave the Federation. And then every other chapter is like a section of Vulcan history. And there is a chapter from the perspective of a uh, matriarch arranging a marriage, but it's not super specific about, you know, all of the rights and stuff. It's more about how they use marriage as a way to like cement political alliances and stuff like that. And it's very interesting book. I guess I'm not surprised that Vulcans wouldn't be romantic. I feel like they would be take a very pragmatic, logical view of um, both sex and marriage. But as, as many cultures here on Earth have, exactly. But yeah, they definitely go more into it. I I don't I can't remember anything specific to the rights of men in marriage, though. Well, in Enterprise, there it's implied that they have the ability to that either side has the ability to dissolve the marriage. It in Enterprise, uh, T'Pol has a marriage, and that is ends up being they say that it was officially dissolved. So, to me, that implies that they're saying either side could end it. It's possible only he could end it. I mean, one of the things we see about the portrayal of Vulcan society, even in Enterprise, 
um, is that there is just so much incredible pressure that even like social pressure that even when there's no law against something, the social pressure is like might as well be. So it might be that they're they're legally allowed to, but it's just like so incredibly looked down upon. And I mean, when Vulcans are unhappy, you know how they look. So when they're unhappy, like you really don't want to be in the way of that. Yeah, I also want to address quickly the comment on uh, the relationship of sex and violence also in The Enemy Within. It is, honestly, it's all over Star Trek. And I, I still find that idea of of them being so closely linked kind of problematic. And I even noticed it, I'm only bringing this episode up again <laughs> because I watched it this morning. I noticed it even in Loud as a Whisper with the chorus that one of the members of Riva's chorus uh, states that he expresses lust and also aggression. And it just, you know, flips something in my brain that's like, oh, there it is again, that that sex and violence are, are linked and considered part of the same, I guess, aspect of somebody's personality. Which is pretty unfortunate. Yeah. I reject that. All those in favor, yeah. say ew. 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 <laughs> <laughs> All right, next up we have a comment from Maple. Hello, my name is Maple, and I'm an avid fan of Trek FM and Women at Warp. I was wondering if there is a possibility of Women at Warp maybe doing an episode with the depictions of transgender people on Star Trek. I know the lack of LGB characters has been discussed on other Star Trek fan media, but not much focus has been focused on the T. There are tidbits here, such as Data's line, and there are tidbits here, such as Data's line. At Troy and Riker's wedding, several trans actors appearing in Star Trek, the episode The Outcast, which I do think is a symbol of trans rather than LGP themes, and various androgynous and multigendered species. I believe Odo species, the changelings, can be seen as gender neutral if you look at it in the right way. So we're definitely going to do an entire episode on a lot of these issues. There's a lot to bite into there. Yes. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I find most interesting about Star Trek is there are these characters, like um, you mentioned Maple, like Odo, um, and the Changelings, that there's no reason that the writers had to give them gender, except for to, like, make them fit into boxes that the writers understood and that they thought the audience would mostly understand. Um, also because casting. Well, yeah, but you, like, <laughs> you put people under a ridiculous amount of makeup, and also, I mean... Like, a person's, they can cast trans actors. Also, just, it, it can be valuable to disconnect the idea that the way that someone appears physically is necessarily a manifestation of their gender. So, there's theoretically a lot more potential for gender fluidity than was ever really explored. I think with Data, you know, you can argue he was programmed by Dr. Soom, so he made him in his image, that makes sense. With Odo, you can argue he's raised by Dr. Mora, but then, like, why... The, the female changeling is in all of the credits listed as like the female changeling or the female shapeshifter. And she's referred to as the female founder. So even though, you know, we never get to see Odo or her exploring what it would be like to live as a different gender and see if maybe that fits more of their identity. So there's, there's potential that didn't really get explored, but we're definitely going to do an episode more on, uh, LGBTQIAP issues um, and trans characters and gender fluidity. Whether or not that will be all one episode or a couple different episodes, we haven't really figured out yet, but lots to talk about. 
I do want to jump in real quick and mention the offspring here, though, because mm-hmm. we do have a case where uh, Data created a genderless android who could choose race and gender or nothing and chose to be a, a human female. Yeah, that's right. So. Yeah. And um, the cogenitor is another example of uh, where I don't think the casting prevented the character from being understood as a third gender. It was just like the way that the characters relate to the cogenitor that made that character in a box. Hmm. Even like, referring to them as an it a couple times. Well, the problem. Well, the problem actually is not that it- so much as um, when the doctor refers to the cogenitor as it, um, but then. They correct, like, Trip and Archer insist on calling the cogenitor she, even though they've never had any kind of discussion about why it would be a she other than it's played by a woman. Like, the act- there's an actress under all that makeup. But, but even they choose the name Charles as their name. And I'm not saying that indicates gender, but it, it certainly raises the question of whether it's fair to assign a gender to the cogenitor. Anyway, this is going to be a good episode when we get to it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's going to be an intense episode. So Grace, do you want to take the next comment? Sure. Our email from Sarah reads, I recently realized when I happened to see episodes of Voyager and TNG with similar storylines that despite all the medical advances in the Trek universe, one thing which was shown no advancement is that of pregnancy and giving birth. In the episode where Naomi Wildman is born, her mother almost dies before the doctor decides to transport her out. The only time when technology helps. Keiko gives birth with nothing but Worf telling her to push. I know they were in emergency situations, but she's still in the traditional position there to help doctors, not the mother. And there's no pain relief. How is it that in 300 plus years we can bring people back from the dead, but we can't make birth less painful? I thought it might be something to discuss, as I'm sure you've got some really good insights into women in medicine. This is another good question, and I think it's another one we're going to do a full episode on. Mm-hmm. I'll say, though, um, so it's interesting, like, you're referencing in Disaster, the, like, the traditional position, because basically what you're, like, referring to is the, um, like, Keiko's on her back with her legs up, and indeed that was, like, a position that was developed by mostly male doctors to make it easier for them to see when, like, traditionally before that, most like we give birth squatting. Um, but um, so anyway, just interesting historical tidbit there. But I think there are a couple interesting examples of Star Trek treating birth as something that is not painful and innately dangerous in all cultures. And um, one of those would be in Deep Space Nine with uh, the birth of Kiryoshi O'Brien. And the other one would be with the birth of the child in the child, as awful as that episode is otherwise. So those are a couple examples, but you're right. Like part of the problem with the way that media portrays birth is it's always painful and it's always dangerous, like highly dangerous and highly medicalized. And it takes the control away from the woman to have a birth plan and puts the control in the hands of the doctors to kind of dictate, I know what's best for your body. So something that has been challenged. And uh, I think, you know, we get to see a Bajoran midwife. So that's kind of cool. Star Trek occasionally does something cool, but um, often they go into the pregnancy is highly, highly dangerous and painful situation, even 300 years in the future. 
Which is unfortunate because that really does add this level of othering to the portrayal of uh, childbirth and motherhood in general, which is really unfair, especially if we're talking about wanting to further, uh, we'll broaden the depictions of women in media, just saying, but this thing, this aspect of what we consider a huge part of this gender is icky and weird and scary. I do think that there it'll be really interesting to not only get into childbirth, but also other aspects of pregnancy, such as birth control. There's some interesting messages in TOS when it comes to birth control. Oh, and Deep Space Nine, which you haven't got to yet. I won't give it away. <laughs> okay. Um, but there's also um, pregnancy, and we also need to talk about uh, male pregnancy, which is used as a joke and does really serve no one in Enterprise. Yeah, that was a mess. Although there is a really great one. Um, I think the darkness and the light is an amazing example of like a pregnant woman being super powerful and just, yeah, overcoming the situation. It is very cool to see that. I think I love the depiction of Kira when she's pregnant in general for the sense of, well, I'm I'm pregnant. I'm having a baby. I'm still going to do my job, though. I'm not going to act like it's this massive debilitator for me, even though for some people it is. Yeah. It's just me. It's just me with the baby. Well, in one of the uh, post-nemesis TNG books, Crusher is actually leading an away mission, a medical away mission, that is several weeks long while she is several months pregnant. Mm-hmm. And there are, are several scenes of the same thing where people are telling her to slow down or worrying about her. And she's like, I know myself. I know my body. I'm also a medical doctor. Let me do my job. So I think it gets, and and especially considering at that point, let's say her advanced age, (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, it is what we, what we get of that story is a remarkably easy pregnancy, I would say. So I guess that is, that would be a positive. Interesting. Anyway, look forward to doing an episode on that at some point. Yeah. All right. So next up, we have an email from Alex, who writes, really enjoying your podcast. For a little while now, I've been thinking about Deanna Troy's role on the Enterprise, and I was wondering if you all have any thoughts on this. I've seen a lot of people say that having a counselor as a major character and senior staffer and Picard's left-hand officer literally dates the show because it's kind of a new agey concept that everyone will talk about their feelings and dance in a maple circle or something. Regardless of Troy's sometimes problematic portrayal over the years, I've been thinking maybe her position was actually really forward-looking. Just in the last 15 years, we've learned a lot about mental health, particularly among those serving in the military, aka Starfleet. Consider the difficulties we face with post-traumatic stress disorder among soldiers and people who suffer trauma. Look at the suicide rate among veterans. It seems to me that having someone dedicated to the mental health of a thousand people was actually rather prescient of the powers that be. And it would have made a lot of sense on Voyager, whose crew was trapped on the other side of the galaxy, completely cut off from the Federation, and under frequent attack from unfriendly people. Who was in charge of their mental health? Did the doctor have a therapy subroutine? Oh my gosh. They probably stuck with Neelix on that front, weren't they? <laughs> yeah, ouch. They do tell us in Caretaker that everybody on the medical staff died, which is really unfortunate. I'm assuming that their counselor would be part of their medical staff. You basically have Kess and then Paris. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm not, like, Paris gets a lot better, but I still wouldn't really go to him for counseling or the doctor. Unless my issue was that I was a hologram. If you have hologram-based issues, he's your guy. Otherwise, 
kind of up a certain aptly named creek. Yeah, I've been watching um, quite a bit of season seven of TNG recently, and I've, I'm really struck with how refreshing it is to have Troy being portrayed by that point as a competent counselor. You see an interface. She counsels Jordy about his mother. Uh, she counsels Data in Phantasms. She's just, she's doing, we see her having these appointments and being really calm and collected and helpful and that her role is valued. Picard's, you know, ordering Jordy to go see the counselor. So, like, I think that that's a change that we see over the course of the series that's really good to see, because I agree with you that during the beginning, there was a lack of respect for the importance of that role. I think we've also talked about before how in, uh, not just in TNG, but the role kind of gets taken away by the bartender characters. Mm. So there's like Guinan, and then in Deep Space Nine, we get Vic Fontaine. So there's, even when we do get a counselor in Deep Space Nine later, there are scenes where she could be used as a counselor, but instead Vic Fontaine is filling that role. And I'm not like nothing against his character. I obviously love Guinan, but there's sort of, I think they couldn't really figure out how to have both of those characters filling that role in the series. Yeah. yeah. I agree with everything you just said. <laughs> Co-signed. And definitely, definitely they need a counselor on Voyager. Like, yeah, there's uh, so many, so many cases and so many issues. Where to begin? Yeah, I mean, part of it comes from the the like Roddenberry ideal of the whole, um, like the whole the the Roddenberry vision. Yeah, that everything will be better in the future, where like we will have no sickness, including mental health issues. Um, but certainly, the portrayal of Barkley is less than ideal. So we get we still kind of get stuck in this idea of um, people with mental health issues as like, a, it's funny or it's something that will disappear by the next episode. So um, we'll talk more about mental health in a separate episode and probably talk more about Troy as well. Yes. I'm quite looking forward to uh, discussing mental illness on the enterprise. I think it's a rich topic and mm-hmm. one that needs to be discussed. For sure. mm-hmm. Yes, Most definitely. So, We also have a question from Martina, who says, you had a whole episode about your favorite women in the franchise, and I loved it. It made a lot of sense. It was a good introduction to the sort of topics you intended to tackle. In short, you had to make it. But who is your least favorite woman in Star Trek, assuming you even have one? You can take the question to mean anything, really. Your least favorite because of what she did, or because you think she was badly written compared to others? Vash. Elan of Troyes. Yeah, I'd say Seska. I just feel like she was... She didn't really do justice to being a great woman villain. She was just kind of partly the actress wasn't really told she was going to be a Cardassian spy. And so she she's kind of interesting at first. And I think she could have been interesting staying on Voyager and fomenting dissent. Uh, but they felt like they had to resolve these issues with the Maquis. And then she has all this like gross kind of praying mantis kind of behavior um, where she you know, steals Chakotay's DNA and impregnates herself. And it's just really, and she, she teams up with Maj Kala, who's like the dumbest thug villain in the Delta Quadrant and treats her really badly because she's a woman and because they're the case on her super sexist. I just feel like she's a smarter character and a better actress that to get in this situation where she's playing this kind of crappy personal politics so i don't like her because she was badly written and because of what she did 
I like parts of her. I just feel like overall she could have been done better. Yeah. I liked her at the beginning. Yeah, yeah for sure. Uh, speaking of poor female villains, can I throw it out for Sela? Oh, uh, hmm. yeah. Yeah. She just never, like, they, they brought her in and she just never paid off. Mm-hmm. And yeah. she just was so easily thwarted. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, like, let's put Spock and Data in a room with a computer and expect they can't hack it. (laughs) Yeah, that's just silly. Nice work there, girly. Nice work. Yeah. I just don't like Vash. (laughs) (laughs) I love how uh, Sue is like, yeah, yeah. Vash is terrible. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that uh, Picard's love interest, there was also the um, (laughs) woman from from We'll Always Have Paris, who was just really dull. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't make me dislike No, it her, doesn't make... But, no, like, I exactly. actively dislike yeah. Vash. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've gotten that not, impression. Not just because she's a Picard love interest, but I actually, like, dislike the whole trope. Like, how she's trying mm. to be this Indiana Jones character, but every time we see her, she's a slightly different character, and I just don't think that the writing was consistent or done particularly well. They just didn't know entirely what they were doing with her, did they? Yeah. I just... Yeah, I'm not. A I fan. definitely agree. I, I mean, I, I would say I really like her in Captain's Holiday, but um, I, I kind of fall off after that. <laughs> All right, and I think we've got one more question to address. It's a and good one too. This comment is from Rick. I love your show and have been on board since you first announced it was happening. But in these days of so much vitriolic misogyny online, have y'all had to deal with any butt hurt fanboys crying about women at work? You know, not really. Not nearly as much as I thought there would be. Not from our li- listeners, definitely not. I have had some people where I'm trying to talk about the show, and in concept, they're just like, well, there can't be a lot to talk about there, can there? <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. I mean, yeah, I definitely remember when we started this, there was some hesitancy. We were worried about getting trolls. But honestly, like, we've had a lot of really good experiences hearing from listeners who feel like the show has challenged their way of thinking and maybe they don't always agree with us, but right in saying, you know, I, I've been watching my Star, or Star Trek my whole life and I've never thought about issue these issues in this way. So thanks for helping me see it differently. So that that's super cool. It was part of our goal in the beginning. In the rare instance that we do get a troll-ish comment, because we really haven't had any trolls, you know, like no. hanging out on the page. Oftentimes our our listeners, you guys there, go and shut it down before we even see it, which is awesome. It's fantastic. Again, you guys have got our backs so good. <laughs> <laughs> Overwhelmingly, the feedback has really been positive. Occasionally we get people who accuse us of like being too negative, which is funny. Or watching with a checklist. Or, yeah. Yeah, that like we're we're sitting there with our diversity checklist. Um, I mean, like we're just frothing at the mouth, waiting for something to get mad over. Yeah, must yeah. find something to be angry about. Yeah, I can just... only function through Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean it's obviously pretty silly because we we all love Star Trek. We've said this before, and we're not out there looking to be upset about things but we are out there looking to put a, a feminist lens a women's lens um an equity lens that maybe isn't always getting applied to be like you know this future this utopian future who is, is everyone really being included equally and if 
we're going to be creating more media based on this and people are still coming to Star Trek today, want to make sure that people have, that it's been analyzed from different angles so we can say what might have been done better, even though we love so much of it. We would not be putting this amount of time, energy, and commitment into something we did not totally love. Mm. The thing is, too, is, um, oh, gosh, I completely lost my train of thought. Give me a second. It's important. I want to say it. Um, <laughs> oh, and I think part of the problem when we do get, not necessarily trolls, um, but people who just get maybe uh, defensive or a bit angry about the way that we analyze things is they feel like if we're saying, say, an episode that they love has sexism in it or has racism in it, that they feel that we are saying that they are sexist or racist for enjoying that episode. And that's not at all what we're saying. We're just trying to point out things that could have been done better and making sure that, you know, some of these issues get brought up. But you can still love things. And nobody on our show is trying to tell you you can't love things. Um, so I think that sometimes people have a tendency to, and I I understand this because I do too, like when you love something, any criticism of it feels like criticism of you, but it's not personal. It's, you know, we want our show to be as good as it possibly can be. So that's why we do the kind of critique that we do. Absolutely. Totally. It's okay to love problematic things. I mean, all nothing is perfect, right? There's going to be... be a problematic aspect of pretty much anything, but it's just important to recognize what those things are. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean you have to stop liking it. Being able to recognize when something is problematic is an incredibly important step towards correcting problematic behavior, whether you know you have it or not. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I feel like there there's a certain amount of people that just have trouble with that first step, and it's definitely the hardest one. So... You know, once you start to open your mind to that kind of thing, it's, it becomes easier and easier to see it and also distance yourself from, like, getting defensive over it. But it is it is tough, so I do understand why people get defensive and sometimes a little bit. All right, so is there anything that anybody wants to add to this episode? Um, I guess I would just add that if people want to send us listener mail for a future mailbag episode, or we we sometimes get time to read them in our regular episodes, you can email us at crew at womenatwarp.com or post on our Facebook page. That's usually the best way. And keep the feedback coming. We love to hear it. We love to know what you're thinking of what we're thinking. Absolutely. And if you did send us an email or leave us a comment that we did not read on the show today, especially if you were suggesting an episode topic, please know that we have noted them. We have read everything and have tried to respond to everything, so we're not leaving anybody out on purpose. (laughs) We didn't have time to read all of them out here, but we have read them. All right. And that about does it for us today. Uh, Jarrah, where can everybody find you on the interwebs? You can find me on Twitter at Jarrah Penguin, which is J-A-R-R-A-H Penguin, or on trekkiefeminist.tumblr.com. Andy? Easiest place to find me is on Twitter at First Time Trek. And Grace? You can also find me on Twitter at B-O-N-E-C-R-U-S-H-E-R-J-E-N-K. I forgot how to spell for a minute there. <laughs> I am also on Tumblr with Grace Hart Star Trek. 
fantastic. And I'm Sue. You can find me on Twitter at Spaltor, that's S-P-A-L-T-O-R, or over at AnomalyPodcast.com. Thanks so much for joining us.